This is Foster McCurley from the Wrestling with the Word podcast, and this is our discussion of the Bible text for March 28, 2010. This is episode 66. Four Bible passages are listed in the Revised Common Lectionary for each Sunday. I try to connect most of them by the way they relate to the theme in the Gospel for the day. This Sunday is called the Sunday of the Passion, or Palm Sunday, Year C. Check out the show notes on the lessons at wrestlingwiththeword.com. You will find there some comments on the Hebrew and Greek words that are important in the passages, as well as some cross-references to other biblical texts that help and illumine the ones we are studying. The biblical passages for the Sunday of the Passion are these. The psalm is number 31, verses 9 through 16. The first lesson is Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9a. The second lesson is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And the gospel for the day is Luke 23, verses 1 through 49, or the entire Passion story according to Luke chapter 22, verse 14 through chapter 23, verse 56. Palm Sunday, the Sunday of the Passion, begins the most holy week in the church year. It is a week marked by sadness, by suffering that is both physical and relational. Jesus walked willingly that tragic path that most of us, if not all of us, at one time or another walk in our lives. Just because he was the Son of God did not diminish the pain. It did not ease the agony of rejection and outright desertion by friends. He walked that path willingly because he was faithful to his identity as God's Son and to the mission on which God had sent him. The celebration we will hold next week is not possible without the agony of this one. Happily, though, living on this side of Easter, we know how it will all end. We know that the outcome of all this does not mean the world to us. It means far more than that. The psalm for the Sunday of the Passion is number 31, and the selection for our day is verses 9 through 16. The psalm as a whole is one of lament and thanksgiving. The lament essentially occupies the first 20 verses of the psalm, and the thanksgiving is the conclusion at verses 21 through 24. The psalmist here does what virtually all psalms of lament do, and that is essentially indicate that the basic pain that they're experiencing is the absence or forsakenness of the Lord. That, interestingly, comes out toward the conclusion of the psalm, where in the midst of the thanksgiving, the petitioner says, I had said in my alarm, I am driven far from your sight. But you heard my supplication when I cried to you for help. Driven far from your sight, that God-forsakenness issue, is really at the heart of most laments. They usually, in fact, say that specifically somewhere 
In the psalm, they often talk about the need for or the call to God to remember what they, what God had promised, uh, to remember the people, to remember this, and, and literally a forget-me-not. Do not forget me. Do not forget your covenant. Uh, there's also in uh, such psalms a, a plea uh, for God to respond, to deliver, and uh, there's always seems to be, with maybe one or two exceptions, a thanksgiving at the end. So this psalm is very typical in terms of a basic problem being uh, the absence of God precisely when the psalmist needed God most. Now, this one in particular uh, laments the suffering of some chronic malady, and the psalmist is now on the verge of a violent death, people whispering, planning, plotting against the person's life. People are rejecting him. He has become such a sorry sight that both enemies and friends have, in fact, deserted him. You don't even want to look at him. In the midst of his worst hour, the psalmist realizes that pouring out such a lament is not actually a complaint against God, but a petition to a God who cares and understands and who has known to be that kind of God in the history of the people. It's to this God the psalmist surrenders in faith and trust, even using the words that Jesus quotes from the cross, namely, in verse 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. That's not part of our selection for the day but it does nevertheless indicate the centrality of this particular psalm of lament in the story of Jesus' crucifixion. The first lesson for the day is Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9a. That is the first line of verse 9. I summarize the passage in this sentence. God enables the servant to endure suffering in order to be the Lord's witness in a hostile world. I'll discuss this rather briefly as well as the second lesson because I want to save uh, most of our time for a discussion of the critical nature of the gospel lesson. Now for this, Isaiah 50 verses 4 to 9. The passage is the third of the so-called servant songs in 2nd Isaiah, the others being in chapter 42 verses 1 through 4, the second being Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 6, and the fourth one being the long passage in Isaiah 52 13 through 53 12. The speaker of the songs, numbers 1 and 4, is the Lord, while in Numbers 2 and our own, the third one, the speaker is the servant himself. It's the identity of the servant that's been the subject of much scholarly debate over the centuries, maybe even over the millennia. The answers ranging from the prophet himself to the king, to the exiled people of Jerusalem, and of course to Jesus. The immediate context is interesting since verses 1 through 3 speak of the Lord as having the power to deliver the people from their exile 
And then our verses in chapter 50, verses 4 through 9a, attest to God's accomplishing that deed through the servant. Now, there are many interesting features about this psalm, and I would suggest that you read it and listen to its words. It's an expression of the purpose of God through one who is a servant, and in my opinion, that servant is indeed the exiled community from Jerusalem that's now serving as exiles in Babylon. It is a an identification that goes back into the book itself where the servant is often called Israel or Judah and it is a way of indicating that the suffering that the people are enduring actually has a purpose in God's scheme. The purpose of the God-given wisdom that the servant talks about in the very first verse, he is as those who are taught, is interestingly not for his own glory, not the servant's own aggrandizement, but to sustain the weary with a word. In Elsewhere in Isaiah, in chapter 40, verses 28 to 31, the weary can even include youths who are exiles in Babylon. It's not simply a matter of physical strength, and it's a matter of this depression, this just being beaten down by the weariness, by the oppression of it all, by the hopelessness of it all. But the Lord does not grow weary, we're told in Isaiah 40, and therefore shall renew the strength of the people. So what we've got here is a very moving uh, assertion that the servants has been given the wisdom of God in order to sustain the weary with a word. That seems to me to be a call to any who consider ourselves to be servants of the Lord. Our role is to sustain the weary by the word of God that we have been given ourselves. The words, I shall not be put to shame, remind us of the psalm for the day and other psalms of lament. Interestingly enough, that is also an expression that occurs in Psalm 31. It's part of verse 1 and it's part of verse 17. So it's built in to this psalm of lament that has been assigned for our day. I shall not be put to shame. There's also in Psalm 25 verses 2 and 3 and 20 this refrain about not being put to shame. And that too, number 25, is a psalm of lament. And that psalm also contains the plea that Psalm 31 does, that the Lord teach the petitioner, along with all those who fear the Lord. Those are in verses 4 to 5 and verse 12. So the psalm is one that we can imagine would be significant for this Sunday of the Passion as we get into the the unbelievable sufferings that Jesus will endure on our behalf and what God is doing in the midst of all that suffering for the benefit of us all. The second lesson is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I summarize the passage like this. 
The humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ causes the entire universe to bow at his name and confess him as Lord, so that God might be glorified. Paul wrote this epistle from prison, that is clear enough, but we do not know which prison. If the imprisonment was the one in Rome, according to Acts 28, he wrote the letter about 59 to 60 AD. If his imprisonment was the one in Caesarea, then he wrote it about 56 through 58. If, however, this imprisonment is the one in Ephesus, then he wrote this epistle between 53 to 55. That would be the earliest possibility. In any case, at chapter 1, verse 27, Paul turns to issues of lifestyle among Christians at Philippi. Against opponents who teach a false gospel, Paul urges them to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel. And now as we enter the point where he is going to quote this particular hymn, he is he really gets back to this mind, the what is the mind, and he uses the hymn to demonstrate Jesus as the role model for humility. That's the kind of mind. Jesus' humiliation paves way in this hymn to exaltation, a theme that Paul takes in a slightly different direction in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. There he says that though he, meaning Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now here he's talking about the humiliation and exaltation of Christ to the glory of God. So there's a difference, but it is interesting to note that Paul uses this same concept of giving up power, giving up authority, giving up the riches of being equal to God in order to become poor for our sakes. Now the verses, as I've been implying, represent a a hymn or a creed, and it certainly does seem to be one that existed prior to Paul. The the attempts to define its origin have ranged from a Christian Aramaic psalm to a Hellenistic myth about the first human, but Paul certainly does see in the words an application to the death and resurrection of Jesus, in fact to the incarnation, humiliation, crucifixion, and then the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's it's powerful, and Paul is asking the people in Philippi to have that same kind of attitude, that ability to be humble, to actually give up oneself so that others might become rich in the message of the gospel. It's a very, very powerful hymn, and it, it ends with uh, the assertion that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and then it talks about the universe being actually this three-storied one that people did believe in at that time. Every knee should bow in heaven, top level, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, 
You see, there's not mentioned here so much the specific benefit of the people who make the confession, but rather that the purpose of it all is the glorification of God. The Gospel for this day is from Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 49. I summarize this long and complex passage like this. Against the innocence of Jesus and various declarations of his innocence, Jesus died the death of a condemned criminal out of faithfulness to his identity and to God's mission to the world. In the previous chapter we had all the events leading up to this moment. The chief priests and the captains of the temple arrested Jesus and brought him before the Sanhedrin. There they asked him two questions. If you are the Christ, tell us. And the second was, Are you the Son of God then? To the first one, If you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus said, If I tell you, you won't believe me. And to the second one, Are you the Son of God then? He said, You say that I am. And I assume that means, I didn't say that, you did. And at any rate, he's turning the issue back on themselves. And so it is the identity of Jesus that really becomes the critical issue here. And so we begin our chapter, our pericope, chapter 23. The whole company then rose up and brought him before Pilate, and they accused him of perverting the nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which he never did, of course, and saying that he himself is Christ the King, which he didn't actually say either. And so Pilate asked him the same kind of question, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him in the same way that he answered the priests and the assembly of elders earlier when he said, You say that I am. He now says, You have said so. And Pilate turned to the chief priests and the multitudes and said, I find no crime in this man. Now this is the first declaration out of several in this chapter. I find no crime in this man. They, of course, weren't happy with that and kept it up. So then Pilate suspected that he was a Galilean. He said, well, then let's turn him over to Herod because Galilee is Herod's jurisdiction, not mine. And so he sent him. Herod, interestingly enough, was absolutely ecstatic to see him because he always wanted to meet him in order to get a sign. Now, I ask you to turn to the show notes to see the note on verse 8 about signs, where they appear, and the demand for them throughout Luke's Gospel. But this is absolutely unique. You don't have this anywhere else in the other Gospels. It's only in Luke here, where Herod is just ecstatic to see him, because he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him, and then it says, So he, Herod, questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. That only gave the opportunity to the chief priests and scribes to keep talking, since Jesus was silent. And Herod, with his soldiers, were told, then treated him with contempt and mocked him and even arrayed him in gorgeous apparel, all dressing him, I guess, to look like a king, since that was the accusation. It doesn't tell us really, though, what Herod's evaluation of Jesus' innocence was at this point. Well, they sent him back to Pilate, and Pilate called everybody together, the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, and neither did Herod, for he sent sent him back. Now, there we have two people right off the bat 
who apparently find no wrong in Jesus. They are both declaring his innocence. Now it seems as though there's a law going on here that's being twisted a little bit. According to Deuteronomy chapter 19 verses 15 through 21, there is the law that whenever someone is making an accusation against another, the accusers and the accused present their case to, quote, the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. And if there are several witnesses who can testify to the guilt of the person, then the person is indeed indicted. However, in this case, the priests were the chief accusers, and that made the law much more complicated, even though the judges, who would be Pilate and Herod, have declared Jesus to be innocent. The priests were precisely the ones who were pushing and pushing and pushing to have him declared guilty and sentenced to death. So they kept it up, kept it up, and finally, and again in verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, and they cried out, crucify him. And still a third time, he says in verse 22, I find in him no crime deserving of death. I will therefore chasten him and release him. But they pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. It was the religious authorities, you see, who were really out to get Jesus to have their last word and to nail him to the cross. Herod and Pilate, the political authorities, the governing authorities, found no guilt in him at all. But Pilate finally gave in. Now when the time came to take Jesus right to the foot of the cross, we're told that there were two others who were criminals led away to be put to death with him. And then Luke says, And when they came to the place, which is called the skull, they crucified him. In between these two criminals. Now that's a very interesting expression, when they came to the place, because those words are virtually identical to Genesis 22, verse 3, in reference to the sacrifice of Isaac. When God called Abraham to sacrifice his son, God told him to go to one of the mountains in the land of Moriah to perform this. And then we're told, and when they came to the place, in Genesis 22, 3, the sacrifice of the promised son was about to occur. Those words are used of Jesus right now, the place of the skull. It's interesting also that in Genesis 22, when they arrived at the place, the place, the first word that Isaac uttered to his father was pater, that is, father, and that really is now the first word that Jesus uses in verse 34, father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It sounds so much like this story, the sacrifice of Isaac and the sacrifice of Christ, except that God did not save his own son from death as God saved Abraham's son back in Genesis 22. Now, on the cross, of course, there is this constant reviling and scoffing and mocking. The people stood by, interestingly enough, according to Luke, and the rulers scoffed at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Let's think about that for a moment, though. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, or if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The terminology sounds so much like other pieces in Luke. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. It sounds so much like the devil in the temptation in chapter 4 
of Luke's Gospel. The one challenge that the devil made to Jesus was, If you are the Son of God, make lunch out of this stone. And then again, later on, he says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from this mountain. And so the point is, you know, if you are the Son of God, prove it. And that's what the mockers are here challenging Jesus to do. If you are the Christ of God, prove it. Save yourself. Rescue yourself from this agony. Now, the chosen one is used as a title here, and that's interesting because the chosen one is really part of the announcement of God at the Mount of the Transfiguration, according to Luke. This is my son, my chosen one. There, God has indeed announced Jesus was the Son of God, but here are the challenges. If he is really that, then let him prove it. And that meant saving himself, but Jesus did not come to the world to save himself. He came to save others, and so he will die, but others will be saved. And now we run into this very interesting situation in Luke's Gospel. One of the criminals challenged him as well. The same kind of mockery, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. There was indeed a uh, a self-interest involved there. If you can save yourself, then you save us too. We're all here to die together. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Oh yeah, and then us. And the other rebuked him. This was the really interesting part, and so typical of Luke's gospel. A dying thief, a convicted murderer, said to the other one, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed deserve this. This is a just verdict. We're receiving the due reward for our deeds. Now watch this one. But this man has done nothing wrong. There's another declaration of innocence. This man has done nothing wrong, and it is said by the thief. That sets the stage for one of Jesus' last words from the cross. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today. Now that's an interesting statement when you think about it, because Jesus didn't get there today. If this is all happening on a good Friday, Jesus, according to Luke, didn't get there for 40-some days afterward. 40-some days from Sunday, we call it the ascension of our Lord. It's recorded in the first chapter of the book of Acts. But Jesus says to the thief, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Well, what's interesting is the significance of today throughout Luke's gospel. It really doesn't refer so much to a 24-hour period as it does to a critical moment. The word today appears at the birth story of Jesus. Today is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel, in verse 21, Jesus says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, namely the scripture about the kingdom of God coming. In chapter 19, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house is the way Jesus speaks to, interestingly, an outcast named Zacchaeus. Salvation has come to this house today. This is the fourth part of the Today series in Luke's Gospel. It has to do with the eschatological moment. It has to do with the day of the Lord. Today you shall be with me in paradise. In the eschaton, you shall be with me in the garden, in paradise, in the kingdom. That's what the thief asked. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you shall be with me in paradise. Paradise and kingdom seem to be used interchangeably here, and they probably refer to that 
Garden of Eden paradise, and they probably will represent the kingdom of God for all eternity, particularly those who are outcast and experience everything but paradise in this world. Now with that word over, it tells us that it's the sixth hour in darkness over the land until the ninth hour, and then the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and that would seem to mean that that dividing line between the Holy of Holies and the populace would be rendered asunder, and access to God would be direct, but that's hard to know what it all actually meant in terms of the way Luke described the incident. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus uttered his last word, according to Luke, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is a direct quotation of our psalm for the day, number 31, verse 6. Like other last words of Jesus used in Matthew, Mark, and John, the psalm source for this saying is a lament. Think of other laments that are quoted in the last words of Jesus. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the first verse of a quite lengthy lament that's used both in Matthew and in Mark for the last words of Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 28, John reports a different word, that is, I thirst. And that is the way to lead into the incident of their giving Jesus vinegar to drink, because that's really a part of the scripture, the Psalm of Lament, number 69, verse 21. And so here, once more, there's a lament serving as the basis for a last word of Jesus. It's Psalm 31, verse 6. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It is a profound expression of trust that with nothing else to count on, I throw myself entirely into your hands. I am yours. That's really the fidelity of Jesus to his call to be the Son of God in the world. Having said that, we are told Jesus breathed his last. And then, interestingly enough, a centurion saw what happened and he praised God, and he said, Certainly this man was innocent. Now, interestingly enough, that's exactly what we would expect to see in Luke's Gospel. This is the Gospel sometimes said for the Gentiles. And here it is a Gentile standing at the foot of the cross, a centurion, a Roman soldier, announcing the innocence of Jesus. Now, how many times have we had that in the chapter? We've had Pilate expressing his innocence at least three times. We've had Herod expressing his interest, at least according to Pilate. We have had the thief on the cross expressing Jesus' innocence, and now we have the centurion expressing Jesus' innocence. In spite of that, the religious authorities insisted he was guilty, and that led to his death. Our passage ends by telling us that all the multitudes, the people who were gathered around, saw this, and they went home beating their breasts. They, too, knew this was wrong. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him throughout Galilee stood at a distance and saw these things happen. It leaves us hanging, to be sure. We do know the outcome. But think, put yourself in the sandals of the people who were standing there at that time, thinking that all the promises of Jesus, all the promises of God that Jesus conveyed, all seemed to be dashed. And yet... It is out of this agony and out of this misery that the most miraculous good news could possibly come. And we'll get that next week.
That ends our discussion of the passages for the Sunday of the Passion, Palm Sunday, Year C. In the next episode, we will talk about the lessons for the resurrection of our Lord, Easter Day. You will benefit from reading in advance of the podcast the biblical passages for that day. They will be Psalm 118, verses 1 through 2 and 14 through 24. The first lesson is a choice. It's between Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25, or the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. I will talk about Isaiah 65. In the second lesson, there's also an option. It can be either 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 through 26, the one on which I will talk, or the alternate is Acts 10, verses 34 to 43. Even the gospel has an alternate. It can be either Luke 24, verses 1 through 12, and that's the one I'll talk about, or John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Be sure to look up the show notes and the accompanying blog at wrestlingwiththeword.com to help you prepare for listening. Before signing off, I want to thank Briaris Nada for the music during this Lenten season. The song is called Mellow Mix. And I am especially grateful to my daughter, Dana Gillen, who serves as my producer for these podcasts. Until next time, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you.